This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So I was already sold. And then he brought out video, and I'm sure he's going to mention his book. I might do. You might mention your book, which I thought shares the good news of Jesus in such a brilliant way that we put it on our website. We have a little section in the God First website, so our story. But before that, we put it as God's story. We thought, this tells the story of God so brilliantly. So I've kind of been stalking this guy in a very appropriate sense. <laughs> and, um, I haven't blocked you yet. No, not no. yet, no. I, I'm, so, I'm one of those faithful people that when Glenn tweets, I like it. Not automatically. <laughs> I, do, I do kind of look and think, well, yes, is this worth liking? But I do like it. So, so I'm a bit of a gush, really, this morning. Because although we've not met Glenn, uh, he's, he's kind of one of my heroes in terms of what he's doing around. So uh, I said, please, could we go out for pizza afterwards? And he said, yes. So I'm thinking, yes! He's holding great. you for this now. So he's that's brilliant. You. So it is really, really brilliant to have Glenn with us. I know Glenn speaks at big places and small places, but he's got a gift of evangelism to stir us. And the gift of evangelist is, stirs us to be better at sharing the great good news of Jesus. So whether you're here and you're not a Christian, or whether you're here as a Christian from grace or God first, he's, he, the purpose is you're going to love Jesus better, and you're going to share him better as a result of today. So I'm just going to play for Glenn. Mm. Father, we thank you for you bringing this guy from Oz to Eastbourne to bless us. Lord, I thank you for the impact and the growing impact he's having with his uh, gift. I pray, Lord Jesus, that he, we would feel the, the weight of that this morning. I pray as he preaches that we'd have open hearts and open minds to hear your gospel afresh, to be moved afresh, to be challenged afresh, to love you and share you with this broken world afresh. So, Lord, I pray, put, put your spirit afresh on Glenn. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Amen. Let's put your hands together welcome him. Uh, that's very difficult to follow. Um, that was a bit gushy, I'm sorry. <laughs> as soon as I arrived here, somebody said, oh, you're Glenn Scrivener. I said, how do you know? He said, we were plastering up your photograph on the screen for six weeks in advance. <laughs> I hope it was a very low-res photograph, like, or no one would come. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is not quite as gushy as uh, I, I was once um, preaching in a church in Eastbourne, and... Um, and for some reason, um, somebody, like a week beforehand, emailed me and said, um, Glenn, what, what are you speaking on? And uh, do you have like a photograph that we could use? And I just didn't t- put two and two together, really, um, because the topic of what I was preaching on, it was called, my sermon was called, What Does It Look Like When God Shows Up? Um, and my answer, right, you see where this is going. Um, 
See, my whole sermon was actually based in one of the letters of Paul to the Corinthians, where in chapter 1, Paul just says, you know what it looks like when God shows up? It looks like Jesus bleeding to death on the cross. That's what it looks like when God shows up. That's kind of flipping everything on its head, right? What does it look like when God shows up? A bleeding sacrifice with his arms outstretched for the world, praying, Father, forgive. Is that, is that what you think of when you think of God showing up? But that, that, that was my sermon. And then I, I, I arrive on the morning of the, of, the, of the Sunday, and there is this massive poster outside of the church. What does it look like when God shows up? And then a picture of me next to it. It's just, just, it must have been the most tremendous disappointment for people. <laughs> um, essentially, I, I do want to think about that question this morning. I want to think about what does it look like when God shows up? And actually, the picture that the Bible gives just upends all our assumptions about what God is like, and therefore what we are like. So I thought we could have a look at a letter from the Apostle Paul, and if you've brought your Bibles, um, you can open them up to Philippians chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, we're going to project the verses on the screen. Um, But Paul is writing this letter to a fractured church. And everyone's looking out for number one, and they're grumbling, and they're griping, and they're sniping at one another. What do they need? The Apostle Paul says what they really need is a vision of God. What they really need is to put God first. Um, Or for those from the other church, they need a gracious vision of what God is like, right? Um, What they need is to see God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that is the answer to all their other problems, And so Paul, actually, he's dealing with a squabbling church, and there are factions going on, and there's a a big public fight between two prominent women in the church. And interestingly, Paul just doesn't come in, first of all, and say, sort it out, guys, come on, let's simmer down. What what does he do? He, He comes in, and he says, let me paint for you a picture of God that is painted in all the colors of Easter, that shows you what God is like according to his death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus dying and rising again on Easter Sunday. And when you get that, everything else falls into place. So, Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5. In your relationships with one another, right, uh, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Am I reading the same uh, translation? Yeah? I'm I'm mapping on-ish. Slightly different. different. You can follow. Excellent. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, this Son of God, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Stunning words. Now, people kind of believe that this was a hymn that people were already singing in the early church. Um, so what Paul is doing is kind of quoting the, the 10,000 reasons of his own day in, in, the, in the letter. He's quoting this hymn that's been circulating around the churches. And so very, very early on, the Christian churches of the first century were lifting up a massive vision of what God is like. And what is God like? God is humble, 
God is sacrificial. God is outgoing. Are those three adjectives that you would use? If somebody just stopped you in the middle of your day and they said, okay, whether you believe in God or not, when I say God, what do you think of? Do you think of humble? Do you think of sacrificial? Do you think of outgoing? If you don't think in those categories, Paul will say, actually, you're not thinking about Jesus. And that's a big problem. Because Jesus is our image of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. John chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Word of God, which means He's the explanation of God. He's the communication of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. And basically, the Bible is saying, what you see in Jesus is what you get with God. Do you believe that? What you see in Jesus is what you get with God. Or do you sometimes believe that Jesus, he's nice, I like the Jesus thing, but maybe behind the back of Jesus there is a God who is not quite as gracious, not quite as sacrificial, not quite as humble, not quite as outgoing, not quite as loving? Even as Christians we can have that doubt that maybe Jesus is just the window dressing. Jesus is just on show to get you in. And then when you come back behind the scenes, you get to a God who is not quite so gracious, not quite so loving. Um, The entirety of the New Testament is written to tell you, no, that's not the case. What you see in Jesus is what you get with God. And we see that in in this hymn. So from verse 6, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. So, Paul here is giving us a psychological insight into the mind of Jesus Christ long before he was born. What were you thinking about before you were born? You weren't. You weren't there to think. What was Jesus thinking about before he was born? The Bible can speak of this because even before there was a universe, there was the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, always loved by his Father, always filled by the Holy Spirit. He has always been in on an eternal Niagara Falls of love. I don't know what your picture of God is, but here's the picture Jesus gives us. He's the Son being filled with the Spirit by a Father who is just forever filling him and loving him. When you think of God, think of overflowing, think of gushing, think of grace. When you think of God, first think of grace, okay? Think of this overflowing reality. And Jesus has been in on this family of love from before the world began. And here it says that being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know how Adam and Eve, they are kind of children of God, created by God, and and they want to grasp at being like God. They want to build and scratch and climb and take what's theirs. But that is ungodlike. That is ungodly. What is it to be truly God? Well, Jesus, he's God the Son. He knows what it is to be truly God. And instead of grasping at life, he pours himself out. So it doesn't say, it doesn't say here that Jesus Although he was in very nature God, he made himself nothing. Okay? It doesn't say that. So often we think like that. You know, although he was God, he became a servant. That's not the sense of it at all. It's because he is in very nature God, so he pours himself out. 
Isn't that a stunning picture of God? It's not. Sometimes don't we think that, you know, Jesus, on the one hand, he's God, which means he is self-sufficient and autocratic and powerful and big. On the other hand, he becomes the baby Jesus, meek and mild, and isn't that sweet? And we kind of, we split off the humanity of Jesus from the deity of Jesus. We do that because we don't particularly like God. Okay, it's a really, it's a, it, it diagnoses a really sick attitude to God. When we think of God is self-sufficient and autocratic and, and not humble, Jesus, whenever he's showing a humble side, he's not showing us what God's like, he's only showing us what his humanity is like. Um, actually, these verses will tell you, no, because he is in very nature God, therefore he is, he is humble, therefore he is sacrificial, therefore he is gracious. And he is expressing what it is to truly be God by taking the very nature of a servant. You could even say a slave there. Taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbles himself yet further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All of this is expressing what it is to be God. What does it look like to be God? It looks like stooping, serving, suffering, bleeding, and dying. That's what it is to be God. Would you have thought that before you looked at the Bible? Would you have thought that that's what God was like before looking at Jesus? You wouldn't. This view of God does not come naturally to us. That's why we need the Scriptures. That's why the Scriptures are always pointing us to Jesus, because they're telling us something we don't know naturally. Naturally, naturally, even in the morning, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for 17 years now, and, and still, every morning I wake up and there's a suspicion in the back of my head that God is a monster, that God is not like Jesus, that God is one who remains aloof, remains distant, who is a bit like the old head teacher with the arms folded, waiting for me to impress him, a little bit ticked off just ready to summon me into his office for a good telling off. That's, that's my natural picture of God. Every morning. So why do I read the Bible every morning? Why, why do I do that? Is that just another religious duty to tick off? Is that just another hurdle that I've got to leap? No. I, I need to get saved again every day. I need, to, I need to be renewed in my mind and to be refocused on the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus shows me what God is really like. God stoops, serves, suffers, bleeds, and dies. And as Jesus does that, he's not taking a vacation from being God. This is the expression of what it looks like to be God. So think of the night before Jesus dies. There he is in the upper room. John chapter 13 says, somebody has forgotten their Middle Eastern manners. And Somebody's forgot, somebody's pr- forgot to provide the foot washing. Now, this was usually the, the job for the lowest slave. But no matter, the eternal Son of God will do it. And he rises from his place of honor at this meal. And John uses a very evocative phrase. He says, he takes off his outer garment. But really, that's just a word for the robe. He takes off the robe, this outer garment, this, this symbol of his royalty. He takes off this symbol of royalty. And he takes on himself a towel, which is a symbol of service. That's what, the, that's what the slave would do. And wraps the towel around his waist, and he goes and he washes and pats dry these disciples' filthy feet. Have you ever had a 
pedicure. Um, <laughs> there are some men, just, just the very idea. I just, I said, can't, they can't believe I even said that. Um, I, that was my reaction. I, I, I was in India, and I was staying, for some reason, long story, but I was staying with um, a Nawab, which is sort of, it's, it's the equivalent of a Maharaja, um, the equivalent here, I guess, of a Lord, um, just this, this nobility. I, I was staying with Indian nobility. And it was just a done thing to offer your guests a, a pedicure. And then when they came to me, I thought they were joking. I just laughed at them. No, no, it's just fine. And then they started insisting. So, no, 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 it is, it is a great offense if you do not take this pedicure. And I'm afraid I just offended them. And I said, no way. No way am I... Ha- no, I don't want to stand over anyone as they wash and handle my naked, carbuncled monstrosities, these feet of mine. Like, I, I don't... I don't want anyone poking around my feet. Like, it, it's, it just feels really awkward, doesn't it? This idea. And that is, that is the, the temperature of the room as Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is moving around the room. And, and, and Peter actually voices what everyone else is thinking. He says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. I should wash you. You shouldn't wash me. This is backwards. And you know what Jesus could say to Peter in that moment? He could say to Peter, Peter, I only ever do what I see my father doing. This is what it means to be God. He stoops, he serves, he cleanses, he takes on himself the shame. He himself gets dirty while everyone else in the room gets clean. We never learn about anyone washing Jesus' feet in this story. It's like he gets dirtier and dirtier and the room gets cleaner and cleaner. And it's a great symbol of what Jesus is about to do. The next day, those same hands that washed the disciples' feet, they will be nailed to a piece of wood as he dies to cleanse the world. Jesus gets dirty, so we get clean. He takes our death, so we get his life. And as he does that, again, he can say to you, this is what it looks like to be God. All throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is always saying, I only ever do what I see my Father doing. If you've seen me, you've seen God. This is what God is like, with his arms open to the whole world. Uh, Romans chapter 10, quotes from the Old Testament. So this is twice in our Bibles, twice in our Bibles, the Lord is speaking, and he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Isn't that extraordinary? Kind of this, this picture of the Lord getting up early in the morning and going out to the marketplace, holding out his, holding out his arms until late at night, constantly opening his arms to people who don't want to receive his love. How often or how long can you hold out even just one hand to somebody who's snubbing you? Like, have, you ever, have you ever gone for a high five and like, just, you're just left hanging for a little bit and you just have to go, ah, air five, yeah, okay, self five, fine, you know. Like footballers, when they're meant to be shaking each other's hands at the start of a match, you know. If one overpriced prima donna does not shake the hand of another overpriced prima donna, even if he holds out his hand for about a nanosecond, it's like back page news. It's like this massive snub. And here is the God of the universe holding out not just one hand, holding out both arms to a disobedient and obstinate people saying, come home, come home, come home, come home. And all they do is spit at him. And the Bible says, that's what God's like. When you see Jesus dying with his arms outstretched to the world, you are seeing what God is like. 
Now, I am an evangelist, okay? It's a dirty word, isn't it? Um, I am somebody who speaks out the evangel, uh, which just means good news. So actually, I'm just a teller of good news, okay? That's, that's not quite as filthy a word, is it? If I go around to calling myself a teller of good news, um, that's a good job to have. We like that, don't we? We like good news. But here is the essence of the good news I bring to people. I, I say to people, look, whatever you have been thinking about God, look again to Jesus, and there you see what God is truly like. When I say God, I'm primarily thinking about a bleeding sacrifice on the cross with his arms wide open to the world saying, Father, forgive them. That's, that's my picture of God. Is that your picture of God? And in evangelism, lots of people have questions about God and how can God do this and how can God allow that? Which God are you thinking about? This is the God the Bible is thinking about. This is the God the Father is thinking about. Isn't that extraordinary that actually at verse 9... You get this shift. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's almost this idea of the Father looking around planet earth and thinking, what can I lift up as a vindication of my true nature? What can I lift up and say to the world, yeah, that's what I'm like? Uh, it's not quite like this, but it's, it's almost, you get the idea of the father kind of looking around and he sees Jesus dying in God-forsaken agony with his arms outstretched to the world. And the father says, that, that is what it looks like to be God. And he lifts up the Lord Jesus and enthrones him at his right hand and says, yes, Jesus is what I'm like. Jesus is what the future is like. And all the world is summoned to respond to this Jesus. And have you seen the way that the world is summoned? Verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus, the great servant, will return. And he will be vindicated as the one in whom God's very nature has been expressed. And his way of service, his way of sacrifice will be vindicated as the way of the future. And on that day, we will all see Jesus. And, you know, we won't be nudging each other on Judgment Day saying, who's that guy at the front? Has he got a name tag? I don't know who this guy is. It's not like there'll be any angels coming and and saying, actually, Jesus Christ is coming. And uh, it's, it's not as though they've kind of forewarned people. And said, when Jesus arrives, uh, it is customary for gentlemen to bow and for ladies to curtsy. And it would be nice if you did. It's, this is not etiquette. When Jesus comes and everyone bows, this is not etiquette. It is, it is inevitable. It is the uncreated glory of Jesus Christ returning to this world. It's the author of life showing up in his own play, in his own drama, at center stage. And everyone will know who Jesus is. He is the one who has been impressing himself on our experience, on our existence, in every detail of our lives. And on that day, we won't be able to stop ourselves bowing. Our our knees will give way. Our stomachs will be turned in a knot. Breath will be pressed out of us. Our arms will will slump and our faces will fall flat before the uncreated glory of Jesus Christ. 
that day is coming, according to the Bible. And the world is unprepared. It is unprepared, don't you think? What do we spend our time doing? You know, that colossal waste of time that Howard was talking about? Twitter, you know, we just, we just scroll, scroll, scroll. Favorite retweet. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, I'll go onto Facebook, nothing else to do. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Nothing's on there. Okay, just 200 channels. Just change the channel, change the channel, change the channel, change the channel. And this day is coming. We're, we're like the kids on the beach just playing with sandcastles when the, when the tsunami is coming. This, this reality is more certain than sunrise. And we are unprepared. The world is unprepared to meet its maker. Now, the Apostle Paul here does not talk about any division between the saved and the unsaved in these verses. He says, look, on that day, we will all bow down before Jesus. But as you go through the Bible, you realize that actually all the friends of Jesus, whenever they meet with the Lord, yes, they begin on their faces. And then the Lord Jesus raises them up. You see that again and again. You see... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, all the, you know, the prophets, they, they see the Lord Jesus. What else can you do in the, in the presence of superlative greatness? What else can you do but feel small? What else can you do but be small? And you get all these moments throughout the Bible of the Lord raising up his friends, raising up his friends. But the Bible also speaks of a reality of those who bow and yet they do not love the judge. They do not want the judge. They do not like the light. And so as the light appears, they want to flee into the darkness. And so the Bible does speak elsewhere of this day being a day of division, a day of separation, a day when those who love Jesus will be welcomed into the sunshine of his love. And those who do not love Jesus will be given their own desires, will be handed over to their own mad desire for independence. Essentially, the Lord saying to them, have it your way. If you don't want me, you don't get me. This is a fearful and eternal reality. And the world is unprepared. Is this a good reason to share the good news? Is this a good reason to share the good news? Jesus is coming and the world is unprepared. I think this is a tremendous reason to share the good news. But let's not make it our only reason. This reason alone would be enough to get us out there, get us sharing the gospel. But let us not think that as Jesus asks us to share the gospel in advance of that great day, it's not as though Jesus stands aloof in heaven and he sends us to go and be outgoing into the world, run around and try and tell the world, be ready, be ready for the return of the king. It's not as though Jesus says, okay, I'm going to sit up in heaven, now I want you, my church, to go and get busy in the world. What does Jesus say in the, in the Great Commission? He doesn't, he doesn't say, therefore go into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded and lots of luck, I hope you do really well, I'll be really rooting for you up in heaven and see you all on Judgment Day. Is, is that what he says? How does he finish that? Surely I'm with you even to the ends of the age or the ends of the earth. So it's not as though Jesus is up in heaven and he is... We, we sometimes think about this, don't we? God, God is the one with his arms folded, and he just asks us to get busy in evangelism. It's not that at all. It's that God is eternally the outgoing one. And he then invites us into his outgoing life. 
It's tremendous in this passage, the way Paul has just spoken about the outgoing nature of God. And then, uh, from verse 12 and following, he's going to tell us how an outgoing God makes an outgoing people. So let's just briefly have a look at the next paragraph and, and see how the outgoing nature of God makes us into outgoing kinds of people. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life, or as you hold out the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So here we've got an outgoing God who creates an outgoing people. And in these verses, there are actually four outs that Paul speaks about. He speaks about working out your salvation. He speaks about shining out your light that you have. He talks about holding out the word of life. And then he talks about pouring out your very self for the world. Do you see how an outgoing God creates an outgoing people? And just briefly... um, As I finish, let's just have a look at those four outs, those four ways in which the outgoing God makes an outgoing people. And the first way is in verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now be very careful with this verse. Um, Some people want to translate this verse as though Paul was saying, work for your salvation. But it doesn't say work for your salvation, does it? You can't work for your salvation. How could you work for your salvation? It's an utter gift. God gives you his son, Jesus, and says, here, have him. He's for free. He's forever. He's great. Have my son. You can't pay for that. You can't, you know, how much do I owe you for the son of God? Like, it's probably out of our, out of our price bracket, right? We, we probably can't afford him. So we just receive Christ. He has worked into us. There is this gift that the Spirit gives us, the gift of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul says, now work him out. Work him out in every aspect of your life. So faith, it is a very personal matter to personally know the Lord Jesus, but it's not a private matter. It's something that is to be worked out. It's an outgoing thing. And and Paul is going to talk about creating us as outgoing people as we understand this outgoing God. You know, grace from God runs downhill. You know, the Father's always been pouring out His Spirit onto His Son, and then His Son is given to us, and then we go out into the world. It's it's this gracious movement from the Father to the Son by the Spirit, from the Son to us by the Spirit, and from us to the world by the Spirit. That's the spiritual flow that we are in. Grace just runs downhill. I heard on the radio recently there was an an interview with a guy, and and he said, uh, it is one of life's great tragedies that men love women, Women love children, and children love hamsters. Um, Now, obviously, children love their parents, and wives love their husbands, but it it is interesting. That taps into something we're we're aware of, this this sort of flow that happens. And and the Bible speaks about this gigantic cosmic flow. God loves us, we love the world, and we work it out into the world. So we, we work out our salvation, we shine out 
our salvation as well. We will shine among this world like stars in the sky. Jesus never tells you, he never tells you, get on fire for me. He says, you are the light of the world. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, you know, crank up the temperature on your burning. You don't need to crank up the temperature on your burning. You are the light of the world if you are in Christ. The only thing he tells you to do is, is take the bushel away. Take the bucket that you've put over your light away, okay? You are the light of the world, and you are shining out into the darkness. What is the darkness? Well, verses 14 and 15 give you the, the context for the darkness. Grumbling and arguing. <laughs> there is a darkness in this world. I don't know how you would describe the darkness. Paul describes it as grumbling and arguing. Backbiting, um, it's, it's funny, Howard was mentioning social media. It sounds like social media, doesn't it? <laughs> grumbling and arguing, you know. What is, what is Facebook? You know, I put a grumble online, and then in the comments, everybody just argues about it, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's kind of... And what does Paul say? You can stick out like a sore thumb if you're gracious, if you model contentment in Christ. Although he doesn't say stick out like a sore thumb. He says you'll shine like a star in the universe. Some people say to me, it's very difficult to be a witness in the workplace because it's such a dark place. And I think what Paul would say is, I'm I'm really sorry it's a dark place. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for that workplace. But the darker it is, the more you'll be seen, seen to shine. The blacker the backdrop is, the more you can be seen. You know, if, if you worked for some, like, humanitarian charity in which everyone was just loving each other constantly, it'd be really, really difficult to outshine them, wouldn't it? Um, if, you're, if you're in a workplace in which there is backbiting and grumbling, just the merest way in which you stand against that and model Christian contentment in the workplace, that's going to stand out. You're going to shine. So that when everyone just, like, badmouths the boss, if you're able at any point to say... Yeah, but I just wonder what's going on at home. I'd heard that there's been some troubles at home. Maybe, maybe that's why they're acting like that. And, and if you're in a workplace that is just full of gossip and backbiting, that feels really, it, it feels like you're standing out like a sore thumb, but you're not. You're shining like light. Shining like light. Um, one person who really captured this beautifully, is, I think, is Catelyn Moran, who... Um, uh, columnist with the Times, and uh, a couple of years ago, she wrote this beautiful letter to her daughter. In the event of her death, she wanted her daughter um, to get this letter, and um, here's the, the main section of it. She says, the main thing is, her daughter is about 12, 13, the, the main thing is resolve to shine constantly and steadily like a warm lamp in the corner, and people will want to move towards you in order to feel happy and to read things more clearly. You will be bright and constant in a world of dark and flux. And this will save you the anxiety of other ultimately less satisfying things like being cool, being more successful than everyone else, and being very thin. (laughs) And isn't that... How do we want to be different in the world? We want to be successful. We want to be pretty. We want to be witty. We want to be whatever it is. And Catelyn Moran and Jesus and the Apostle Paul, so it must be right, they all say, shine in terms of that warmth, in terms of that generosity, standing against the culture of grumbling and arguing. Just model Christian contentment and you will shine. People will come to you. Um, Henry Alonga, some of you might know who Henry Alonga is. He's a, a great cricketer, played for Zimbabwe. He was one of the fastest bowlers in the, in the 1990s. 
Um, as quick as Shoaib Akhtar and Brett Lee and people like that, um, very erratic with it, but he was a very fast uh, bowler. Um, but uh, he made a stand against Robert Mugabe. As a Christian, he thought, well, Robert Mugabe is uh, this dictator, and so he, he wore a black armband to the World Cup in 2003 um, to mourn the death of democracy in Zimbabwe. And, um, and he was kind of my hero, Henry Longa. And I, I just, I always imagined Henry Longa as a Christian man standing up for what is right in the cricket team. I play cricket a little bit as well, and, and, and I've always tried to think through, how do I shine in my cricket team? I always thought, well, Henry Alonga, he, he'd be a guy who knows what it is to shine. And so I, I got some time with Henry Alonga a couple of years ago, and I asked him, what was it like being in the, in the cricket team? And I just thought, it must have been wonderful. He just must have been this most amazing evangelist in his cricket team. And he said it was horrible. Everybody hated me. Um, I was rocking the boat massively. Um, I was receiving death threats. Every, everything was made more difficult in the cricket team because of my Christian stand in that cricket team. And nobody liked me talking to them about, about Jesus. It was horrible. But whenever their form dipped and they were about to get cut from the team, whenever their girlfriend was about to dump them, whenever someone in their family got the diagnosis of cancer, he said, I was the person they spoke to. They recognized something in me that could be trusted in those difficult times in life. And so I became the sort of person that people would come to when life was hard. I think that's a beautiful definition of what it is to shine in a dark place. It doesn't mean you need to be the alpha-type personality with the gift of the gab and you've got a thousand mother-in-law gags, okay? So often we think of evangelism like that, you know? I need to be the coolest guy in the room and a Christian, and then people will come to me and say, Oh, Glenn, you're really cool. What's your secret? And I will reveal, come to church, and you too can be cool like me. You know, that doesn't work, does it? It really doesn't work. And yet we can think... How am I going to shine? I need to be this alpha-type personality, and then people will be drawn to Christ. No, be the person who is warm in the corner, who is shining out the love of Christ, and when life gets difficult, you'll be the one that people turn to. As they turn to, what do you do? You hold out the word of life. Some translations talk about holding out the word of life. Some talk, translations talk about uh, holding on to the word of life, but really it's the word of life that is front and center. And... and Paul is, is telling you, look, you've, you've got words to share with people. Don't just shine and be nice and gracious and lovely. That's cool. But as you do that, you've got to share a message with people. Yes. With words, you've got to share Jesus with people. You've got to hold out the word of life. You really do. So often we, we kind of think, when I mention Jesus in a conversation, it's a bit like a kind of an asteroid just crashing down into the conversation. Don't we think... There we are at the dinner table, and suddenly if I mention the name of Jesus, it feels like a sack of rocks has just crashed down and onto the dinner table, doesn't it? It feels like that. And Paul and Jesus and the whole Bible are trying to tell you, look, that's not a sack of rocks. That is seed. There is life in that. You might not see the life right now, but seed takes time to operate. Life works in this subterranean way and will get under people's skin and be planted in their hearts and, and maybe months or years later, that word has its impact. But keep on scattering the seed. You, you hold on to, you hold out the word of life with people and it has this supernatural power. Keep on sprinkling the word of Christ into your conversations. Later on this afternoon, we'll think about how we can do that. But that word has life to it. So hold on to it. Hold it out. And then finally, Paul talks about pouring himself out. 
poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. In the Old Testament, at the end of all the other sacrifices, at the very end of the day, after the guilt offering was made and the sin offering and the fellowship offering, at the end of it all, there was this drink offering. It was almost like at the end of the day you could have a drink with the Lord. You know? And it's this, this idea of all of sin is dealt with, all of guilt and shame is dealt with, now you can enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And yet Paul doesn't just talk about drinking with the Lord. He says he himself is that drink offering. And he himself is poured out. And you think, well, how appropriate. Paul has learnt. He's learnt the secret of contentment. He's learnt the secret of how life works. Life works by pouring yourself out. That's how it works for God. That's how it works for us. The Father pouring himself out into the Son. The Son pouring himself out for us on the cross. The Spirit pouring himself into us. And us now pouring ourselves out for the world. We often think that the way to live is to fill up, don't we? We fill up on another achievement, another performance, a bit more money, a bit more resources, great holiday, get that relationship, get that dream job, that dream city, fill up, fill up, fill up, fill up, fill up. And if you're filling your cup up the whole time, how free are you? If that's the way that you live, always trying to get more. If I had a cup full to the brim, we're not allowed cups in here, by the way, um, <laughs> But I am special. Check me out. Okay. I, I don't abide by the rules. I'm not, I'm not like you people. I'm special, right? So I don't want to spill this now. Having, having broken the rules now, I don't want to spill this. And the fuller that cup is, the more nervous I am, right? Because I might spill some. And it's, it works in life as well. We think the secret to life is filling ourselves up with all sorts of performances and achievements and resources. And actually, the more you fill yourself up, the more you're committed to filling yourself up, the less free you become. Paul, Paul says, I know how to be free. I know how to be fulfilled. I know how to be satisfied. I know how to be content. I pour it out. And now I'm free. I can just get out there and pour myself out. And as he does that, he is enjoying that flow from the Father, through the Spirit, by the Son. Now he's got Jesus and he pours himself out to the world. So how should we, how should we think about all these things? Well, what is your picture of God? What is your picture of God? Um, maybe this morning you, you haven't yet said, I'm all in for Jesus. We had a word earlier, didn't we? Are we all in for Jesus? Are we leaning into him? And maybe you've thought this morning, I'm not sure I can trust this Jesus. Well, hopefully you can trust this Jesus, right? Are his arms open to you? Can you lean back into him? Are his arms open to you? They were nailed open for you. You can lean into Jesus. And as Christians, do we really know that God is like this? That he really is an abundant, overflowing, generous fountain? If we know that, then we can pour ourselves out. Not to win his love, but because we've been won by his love. And now it is our great freedom and our joy to pour ourselves out, to hold out the word of life, to shine out the light that we've been given, to work out our salvation, because we've been won by the outgoing God. Should we pray together? Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father,
We praise you for what you're like. We see what you're like in the face of your son, Jesus. And we praise you. You are the outgoing God. And Father, Father, there are people here who do not know whether they can trust you. Father, show them. Pour out your Holy Spirit to them now. May they see who you truly are in the face of Jesus. May they see Jesus Christ and him crucified. May they know that those arms are open for them. I'm just going to invite you, if, if you, if you haven't yet trusted in this God, I just invite you right now in the silence to call out, call out to this God, the God with his arms open to you, and say, Lord Jesus, I belong to you. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that you would win us from our own selfishness, from our own little lives. And I pray that you would prize open our clasped hands, that you would open out our folded arms, that you would make us into outgoing people who shine out into the world your loving, outgoing nature. Lord, reach Cheltenham through these churches. Reach Cheltenham. May Cheltenham know who you are as they see Christ-captivated Christians pouring themselves out to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.